Well, I think the hardest thing God ever asked, has ever asked me to do is uh, to wait. And the thing that makes it hard is that every single time it seems he has asked me to wait, it's, it's just been sort of undefined. Like, he says wait, and I say how long, and then just, just wait. And the reason, the reason I know that's so difficult is because a lot of times, I, so I, I go, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just wait. And then after a while, I start to feel lazy. You know, especially when we live in a culture that values activity and productivity and being busy. And we, we determine our significance based on how many people want to get on our schedule. And, you know, I, I felt this a lot when I was younger, especially when I was single. Um, you know, if, if I didn't have something going on on a Friday night, it was like I, I felt like I was failing as a person. Uh, you know, having a kid helped that. So now Friday night comes and we figure out, oh, we have nothing on our schedule. Thank God, I'm so tired. Uh, but I still, I still haven't escaped this pressure, this cultural sort of expectation that if, if we're going to accomplish anything that matters, we need to be going, going, going. And I know you feel that because uh, all of, not all of, that's an exaggeration, most of the best-selling books on Amazon that deal with this are all about being highly effective and getting things done and being more productive than others and automating your stuff so you can be working while you're not working. And we, we feel this pressure. And then, you know, I get on Twitter and I get all these articles constantly from Wall Street Journal and Forbes and Entrepreneur. I don't know why I follow half of these people, but they're still coming up and they're always talking about be productive and here's what you can do and get more done and how you can. It's just this constant pressure that if I if I'm going to matter, if I'm going to do anything important, I need to be going constantly, never stopping. I found this this morning. I thought this was interesting that the uh, Institute of Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University showed that Americans work 50% more than Germans, than the French, and Italians. And it's not just that we work more. They found out that our entire personal drive is toward working. That we, we derive personal satisfaction and significance from the fact that we work a lot. So then what are we supposed to do when we, we come to our spiritual life and we're trying to follow Jesus and what he's asking us to do is wait? It makes sense that, every, that we feel this pressure to be doing and accomplishing and making all of these things happen when everything else around us in our day is telling us you don't matter if you don't produce. And so we find other ways, maybe, to, you know, for some churches and people, it's how many bodies you got in the seats and how many dollars in the budget. And maybe we don't feel that way, but you can, you can just swap that with something else. So maybe you feel like you're significant and you're accomplishing things because of how many books you read or conferences you go to or sermons you podcast. You're getting things done, spiritually speaking. But what if Jesus just wants you to wait and pray? Now, as someone who loves books. The day that I had to sell most of my books to make room for Noah was a day of weeping and mourning in my house, at least for me. Um, so I, I know the value that they can bring. I know what they can offer. But when you can 
take something like that and use it as a way to busy yourself so you don't have to wait. So you don't have to pray. So you don't have to feel that growing, gnawing in your soul that, God, if you don't show up, nothing will work. Then what we're risking by busying ourselves is we're risking really seeing God do something incredible. We're risking seeing God do all of those things that we just wish we could get, but we don't because we don't wait. And it's not just us. It's not like the Lord just looks down. He's like, well, the Germans got it figured out, but you Americans, you guys need to, you guys need to chill out. So I'm going to make you wait. This is how God works with his people. It's been this way from the very beginning. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2, our text this morning, that they had just seen Jesus raised from the dead. They had just gotten to eat with him again. They thought this guy was gone. And the book of Acts opens by Jesus saying, I'm going back to the Father and in a few days, the Spirit will come. And maybe, maybe this experience is where Peter, uh, Peter realized what he writes in one of his letters, that the day, of, the day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Or maybe it's like our experience when we go to the DMV and they're like, it'll just be a few minutes. You know what that means. It means you should have brought a sleeping bag. And he, but he told them, hey, look, you're going to take this message to the ends of the earth. And nothing will stop you. So just wait. Just wait. They were to build God's kingdom by waiting. So Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Not many days. And the interesting thing that you notice when you, when you look at these is he doesn't, he, he says wait, but he, he doesn't say what to do while you're waiting. He just says wait. And so they did. And we see what they're doing. They, uh, you back up a few verses in chapter 1, in, in verse 14, it says that they were devoting themselves to prayer. Which makes sense because often when we don't know what to do, we go, well, I guess I can ask the Lord. And it doesn't say what they prayed or how they prayed, but I imagine that these prayers were a lot like, uh, Lord, what um, do you want us to do while we wait? Or, or maybe, what do we do? Okay, the Spirit's going to come and we've got to wait for that. What do we do when that happens? What do we do then? Or maybe the prayer that I, I find myself praying a lot is, Lord, how much longer? How much longer do I have to wait? For them, their, day, their waiting ended on the day of Pentecost, which kind of gives us a clue how long they had to wait because the word itself comes from a Greek word that means 50. And the day itself was celebrated 50 days after Passover, hence 50, hence Pentecost, hence the day of Pentecost. So 50 days, seven weeks. I was trying to think about what, what was I waiting for seven weeks ago? Do, do I even remember what that was? What were you waiting for seven weeks ago? Maybe you're still waiting for it. Maybe it hasn't been seven weeks. Maybe it's been seven years, seven months. I know for me, I wait seven days and I start going, Lord, hello. What, what are we doing here? 
And again, the text doesn't say, but I, I know how I would start to feel. After two, maybe three weeks, I'd start thinking, okay, maybe, maybe he got back up there and the angels made a mess of the place. And he's like, guys, we, we ran a tight ship for millennia. It's what? 30 years. And it's, what's the deal? And I, yeah, that's just my imagination. But I, I do know there have been plenty of times in my life where I had been waiting and waiting and started to feel like, well, maybe, maybe God's just too busy helping somebody else. And I've felt this way the last few weeks. It seems like every time I get on Facebook, another one of my friends from college, they're getting another promotion or they're starting another business and it's blowing up and everything's going great and they're buying another house. And I'm just kind of like, all right, well, just go back to my apartment, try to figure out what I'm doing with my life. You know, and it, they don't, it doesn't tell us how we felt. All this, it's just, you know, I think about when I'm in their shoes, it's how I feel. It doesn't tell us how they felt, but it does tell us what they did. Like I said in, in verse 14, that they were devoting themselves to prayer. And it also says that they were together. It says that in chapter 1, verse 14, but then in our text, in verse 1, it says again that they were together. So they knew at least... They knew at least one thing. Okay, if we got to wait, we're going to do this together and we're going to pray. And maybe like us, they didn't wait well. They're always going, Lord, come on. 50 days, come on. Maybe they didn't wait well, but they knew how to wait together. And I can't tell you that if we would learn to wait together like they did, then everything that we're waiting for would happen and it would just come together seamless and be perfect. But what I can tell you, because we see it happen, is that if we can wait on God like this, that God will show up. And He will show up in a spectacular way that will be completely unexpected and will blow us away entirely. So maybe you've been waiting those seven weeks, seven months, seven years for a spouse, and you see 30 looming large on the horizon. Maybe it's just a speck in the rearview mirror. You're thinking, Lord, hello. What are we doing? I can still remember each month of that year that Whitney and I were trying to get pregnant. And it was like a roller coaster. And it I can tell you I didn't I didn't wait I didn't wait well. So many days, man, I was angry. I was confused. I was hurting. Looking around, it seemed like babies are just popping up everywhere. People, people who couldn't have kids, suddenly they've got seven kids. And you're like, what? Can't you just throw me one of those babies? And I found, man, it is impossible. It's almost impossible to wait alone. And it's certainly impossible to wait well alone. And slowly through that, we started to find one, two trusted people that we could, we could wait together with. You know, the kind of people that when you just, when you just go, man, I'm angry and I don't even know if God's there. I, I kind of hate God right now and I don't understand why I'm doing this. They don't go, well, let's, let me tell you all the reasons why you're wrong. They say, I'm sorry. Let me wait with you. If we could wait together like that. If we could wait well 
like that. The day came that we finally conceived, and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I'm pretty sure I bought out Walmart on their entire stock of pregnancy tests because I wanted to know that I know. And nine months later, I got to hold that 10-pound wrecking ball of a son, and I was blown away. I'm still blown away. It's almost 19 months, so some days I'm blown away in frustration because uh, he's, he's found his new favorite word, and it's no. Uh, I'm still blown away by that little guy. I'm blown away by what God did. And, and I wonder, what, it, what, it, what have you defined? One, two, trusted people. The kind of people that you could just say, man, I'm waiting on all this and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know where God is. And I don't know if he hears me. And the people who can sit and wait and say, I'm sorry. Let's do this together. What if as a church we could find those few trusted people and we could sit and wait and expect God to come when he finally does come. He's coming to us together. I can't help but think that God might just start to blow us away. Because what happened in the church and what will happen to us and what can happen is in this city, if we learn to wait together and pray, that God comes. That God comes after we wait. And that's what happened to them. After those 50 long, grueling, confusing, uncertain days, that wind begins to blow. Verse 2, that's exactly what it says. That suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And this, he repeats this idea of from heaven because he wants us to remember what the angel said to the disciples. Just a few verses before. That he says, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? That this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way from heaven. So this wind that begins to blow, it's not just a nice breeze on a hot day that kind of cools off the room. This is God coming from the same place where Jesus was, and he has come to his people. God is here. And uh, sometimes, like when God shows up, uh, it can get a little, get a little crazy, Right? It goes on to say that divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Um, I've never seen this, so uh, I, I don't know what this would have been like. But I think it's, it's fair to ask the question, what's the deal with fire and why the tongues? Right, God comes and suddenly there are these tongues on fire on their head. I don't understand. Well, number one, fire, it, it, it's a common picture of God's presence all throughout the the Bible. So in Exodus chapter three, you know, the story, you've seen 10 commandments that God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And how does he show up to him? Burning bush. And then when God does get people out of Israel and he's leading them through the desert, how does he lead them? By day, it's a, it's a giant pillar of cloud, but at night it's a pillar of fire. The author of the book of Hebrews will even tell us in chapter 11 that our God is a consuming Fire. Fire is a, is, a, is a picture of the presence of God. And maybe more significantly for us, 
In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist himself will say, look, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's meant to say, God is here. God God has come from his throne to his people, and he is with us. So then why the tongues? We're told in verse 4 that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This idea of being filled with the Spirit, it, it was something that was unique in the Old Testament. So, for example, there's a guy named Bezalel that God says, I want you to build my tabernacle, the place where my people will meet with me. And we're told that this man was filled with the Spirit, that he was empowered to do this work. Later, when King Saul is set apart to be king over Israel, on multiple occasions, we're told that he's filled with the Spirit. It's a way for God to say, I I am with you and I am enabling you to do this work. So now, for the Spirit to be on the whole church, that's significant. It's a pretty big change. And in some cases, like this one, it's pretty spectacular. But in other cases, it can be spectacularly ordinary. So Paul will write a letter to the, to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He'll say very simply, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what he tells them afterwards, what does this look like? Well, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, and submitting to one another. It's some pretty ordinary stuff. So being filled with the Spirit, it can be spectacular, but it can be spectacularly ordinary too. But the purpose behind all of it is to build the church and expand God's kingdom. That's why we we give thanks. We sing together. That's why the church was given this ability to speak in other languages. That's why the Holy Spirit came in fire to show them that God was there and that he allowed them to speak in tongues to show that God was coming to others also. Look at verse 5. The story kind of shifts, and we're left kind of going, what, what's happening here? Because we're told that dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. These were Jews and Jewish converts, and that all of them had come from all over the world to Jerusalem for this day. And then he starts to list, right? He wants to make sure that we get it. In verses 9 through 11, he talks about all of these places, these cities, these nations that these people had come from. They're not familiar to us, but basically they came from modern day North Africa, Spain, Italy, Greece, Bulgaria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. And you couldn't get a broader spectrum of different people in different languages and different customs and way of relating and talking. And this is, this is a diverse group. And as these details kind of fall into place, we, we, we start to get a little bit of what's happening. Because all these people from all, their, all the places they're from and the language and everything were told in uh, verse 7. I'm sorry, in verse 6. That each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What God had done in this moment when he showed up was given these people the ability to speak to others that they otherwise shouldn't have known how to talk to. 
And they even say it in verse 7, that they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? When I lived in downtown Chicago, I, I wasn't surprised to meet people who knew how to speak other languages. Whether it was just somebody in the city or my fellow students, I met people who had lived in places like Thailand and Korea and France. And, you know, Chicago's a diverse international city, so I wasn't surprised that they could speak all these different languages and my own. We even had a professor, get this, he could read something like 12 languages, he could speak another five, and he learned Russian for the sole purpose of asking his wife to marry him. I dropped out of Spanish in high school. And, I mean, just incredible. So it, it didn't surprise me, though. That these, I met people like that who could do that. And then I moved to Kentucky. Uh, and nothing against Kentucky. So there's some very sweet people who live there. We have family who live there. Uh, but outside of those few international students that came to seminary, too, I, I didn't meet very many people who could speak, uh, I mean, English, let alone anything else. Uh, so if I, if I had ever met a guy whose family lived in Paintlick, Kentucky, which is a real place, for generations, and I found out that he's able to speak Farsi or Mandarin or Portuguese or Hindi, I'd start going, hold on a second. Isn't this guy from East Kentucky? How is, how is he able to do this? And that's what these people are saying when they, they hear this group of people from some backwoods town that can probably barely speak their own language, how in the world can they speak mine? And you know, the thing is, people like Peter and John, these guys were fishermen, they were merchants, they probably dealt with people from different places all the time. And so they probably had little bits of information here and there about what, you know, how to deal with this person, how to do business with that, whatever. But it, it takes more than just some ideas to really engage a person. And I found this out a few weeks ago. Uh, we were visiting some new neighbors of ours. They had just moved in. We wanted to see how things were going, if we could do anything for them. And so they, they invite us in. We sit down, just kind of small talk, and they're telling us all the places they've lived. And uh, they were from originally someplace in Central America, but they lived all over the world. They raised their kids in the woodlands. The kids grew up and moved off, and they went somewhere else, and now they moved back. And they're like, well, we just figured we'd live in the city and not out in the Oh, that's great. And then it always comes back around, and I have to say I dread this moment a little bit. And they always go, oh, so what do you, uh, what do, you do? And Whitney's got it easy. She can say, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Oh, wonderful. That's so great. And then they go, but what about you? And I, always, I feel for the person because I imagine I just get incredibly awkward as I'm trying to figure out, okay, do I tell them something lame like I'd, work for a nonprofit, or do I just own it and say, I'm a pastor? You know, and uh, it's not that I'm ashamed of what I do, because I love, I love it. But the, those three little words can kill a conversation faster than a fart on a date. And I, I, listen, I even had a guy a few weeks ago, or a few weeks before this, we're just kind of small talk. I just met this guy, just shook his hand, and he goes, so what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm in, I'm in ministry. Oh, cool. That fast just walked away from me. And so I'm wondering, oh, what, what's going to happen to me right now? Are they going to go, that's great. Well, it's been nice. Uh, 
So I say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, that's wonderful. I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> and she goes, where, uh, where's, where, where is it? Where? And I go, oh, it's just, uh, just over there, a few streets. She goes, oh, that, I know right where that is. I, I meditate over there. Uh, and now, over the years, um, I've learned a few things about Buddhism. I know it's really old. I know there are different types. And that's about it. Um, so I, there's no way that I could have spoken intelligently about it. And certainly not to this woman who, she did it. Like, she's in it, right? And so I, you know, I fumbled out something like, oh, uh, great. So how's meditation? And it, it went about th- that awkwardly for the rest of the time. And they were, they were incredibly kind to us. Uh, but as I was just reflecting on that conversation after I left, I realized that, you know what? At no point before or during did I ask God to help me. I knew all kinds of stuff. I could, you know, I've spent seven and a half years engaging ideas. That's what you do in seminary. Read books and write papers. But I had so rarely actually engaged a real flesh and blood person. And in that moment, all of my ideas, all my education, it, it failed me. Because it's, man, it's so different to be looking this woman in the eye. And if I just whipped out my phone and pulled out my Bible, oh, that's great. You're going straight to hell, lady. Let me tell you why. She would have shut down. Said, nope, I don't want to hear it. I knew ideas, but I didn't have this. I didn't have the language to speak to her. I didn't have the ability to connect with her where she was. It's because I didn't. I didn't ask God to help. I was leaning on. I've, I've got a master's degree. I can do this. No, I can't. No, I can't. The thing I realize in, in that is that if if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel with our neighbors, or friends, or coworkers. Family. It's not going to be because we we just know all this stuff about them, right? Or we know we know how to counter these arguments. It will be by a complete and utter dependence on the Spirit of God. Give me the words. Give me the words. So when you find yourself in that living room with that Buddhist, you don't have to fumble around like I did. The Spirit of God comes, and this is what He does. He gives us the words. He gives us the ability to speak in a way that connects with what He's doing in that person. You know, and, and here's the other thing. That even though, even though this entire church is, is speaking their language and doing it in the power of God, look at verse 13. There are still some who said, they're drunk. There are still people who will say they're just crazy. That even when God is working and he's telling you what to say and he's he is doing this thing. There will still be people who say you're nuts. I don't want to hear it. But we can still know that the spirit of God has come, that he showed up, that it could be spectacular and it can be ordinary. 
But when he comes, he will work. Because what he is doing in that waiting and and, and in that dependence on him is he is building the kingdom of God. He's doing it. Now look at what Peter says. Verse 14, Peter stands up. Now the last time we saw Peter, when someone challenged God and he was standing there, he cut off some poor dude's ear. And then just a few hours later, a little girl, a little girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he goes, I don't know who the hell that is. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't. So not exactly like the most uh, thoughtful or patient man, right? The same one that Jesus would say to him, uh, Satan, get behind me. Because he wasn't thinking along the lines of God's kingdom. He was a kind of a petulant, shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy. So it's fair to wonder, what, what's he going to do? The first thing he does is he deals with these skeptics and he goes, listen, it's 9 a.m., nobody's drunk. Okay, just had breakfast, we're all good. But then he launches into this sermon. And for, because of the length and time, I, I won't get into every detail, but there, there are really th- three things that he pulls out. Like any good preacher, he's got three points. And here's the first one. He quotes a, a, a prophecy from an Old Testament prophet named Joel. And this was a promise that a day would come when, when God, he wouldn't just send the Holy Spirit on, on some people, you know, like, like David and, and Saul and these other people, that he would send it on his entire church, on everyone. And that this purpose was was to give signs that would point people to God. Was to show that God is here and he is showing us the way. So Peter says that day is here. This day that Joel talked about, it's here. The Holy Spirit has come, which is why all of you can understand. His second quotation is from Psalm 16. And his point here is that, look, God has given signs. He is pointing us to himself and leading us on that way. And the greatest of all those signs, you might be hearing me speak in your language now, but the greatest of all signs is the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And it's interesting the way he does it because he he quotes this psalm that's originally written by David. But as Peter will point out, the problem is David's dead. And here in verse 27, he quotes David as saying, you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. It's a poetic way of saying that you won't let your chosen man rot in the dirt. Here's the problem. David's rotting in the dirt. So Peter's saying that wasn't about David. That was about Jesus. He's not rotting in the dirt. And he's not just not rotting in the dirt. His, his third quotation is from Psalm 110. A psalm where David again is writing that David the king, the only person above the king was God himself. And David is saying that that Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The only person that if you're above David, and the only person above David is God, then this other person has to be God, has to be the same, the same level, the same power, the same authority, the same nature. 
Peter, again, says the greatest of all signs is that that man, Jesus, was dead and now he's alive and he is seated next to God because he is God himself. So here we see this Peter who goes from an impetuous denier of Christ to a fearless preacher of Jesus' resurrection. Because it takes a lot of courage to stand up to a crowd of thousands and say, that Jesus, you killed him. Which is what he says in verse 36. You crucified him. This isn't the same fearful Peter. Because it didn't come from the same fearful Peter. That this Peter was a man who met this Jesus he preaches about. That he saw him die. And then three days later, he looks him in the eye. This same Peter waited along with the rest of the church for the spirit to begin his work. That this man, uh, as he waited for the spirit to work, he waited for the spirit to give him the words to say. And then and only then did it give him the confidence to speak boldly and clearly. So what happens when we, like the early church, begin to wait for the Spirit of God? Wait for Him to come. Wait for Him to give us the words. Well, I've been watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy lately. And it seems in every episode, somebody somewhere is dying. And I've been in hospitals, and it didn't seem this exciting. But on the show, it's certainly uh, it's awesome all the time. Everything's up. And all these people, they're constantly dying, and they run in, and they shoot the adrenaline, and they, they, they shock them with the paddles, and they bring these people back from the edge of death. And I, I know it's a little bit corny, but I, I thought of this as I was thinking of what, what is happening with the Spirit and Peter and all this stuff. And the fact is that when we become a people who wait together in prayer, and we wait on the Spirit to give us the language to connect with the people, that we begin to see God build his kingdom. And it's as if we, we get to be used by him to walk into these spiritual hospital rooms of the people around us who are just coding out. The Spirit uses us to shock them with that adrenaline and shock them with the paddles. And we get to see God bring them back from the edge of that cliff we call death. And he did just that with Peter. This church that's waiting. That's what God did. And he didn't just do it for one or two or maybe a dozen. He did it for 3,000 people. Like that. So Peter just gets off the edge of this, this sermon where he's just simply saying, hey, guys, you killed him. That's a dangerous spot. Uh, verse 37, we see their response. They'll cut to the heart. It's a way of saying, man, Peter's words just came barreling in all the way down to the deepest part of me. And I go, oh, yeah. So they say, what do we do? Peter tells them it's simple. You repent. Be baptized. That's it. And in verse 31, we're told that those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day three thousand souls. What can God do when we wait? And for one, he can save about 3,000 people. 
can turn you or me into a fumbling, stumbling, failing evangelist into a powerful preacher of a God who is, was dead and now alive. When we wait for the Spirit like that, when we ask Him to, to give us that language to speak to our friends, there will be some who think we're crazy. They'll go, oh, and walk away. But there'll be others who don't, and they're the ones who lean in and go, what do I do? And that's, that's when we find out what that waiting was all about. That's when we realized that we were asked to wait while the Holy Spirit worked on people's hearts and to lead us to this point so that we get to be the ones to tell them that Jesus saves. We get to see him change them in an instant. We also see that if we busied ourselves with all kinds of plans and ideas and thoughts, that that we might miss out on what God could do while we waited and while we prayed. So what what if we put down our plans? if we stop trying and working so hard as if as if this all depends on us what if we got built, busy building God's kingdom by waiting and praying let's pray